The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I'm talking with former top dressing pilot, Les Marshall. Part 1. Well, to start off with, I'll get your full name. Yeah, Les, uh, Leslie Marshall, Les Marshall. Yep. And uh, date of birth and place of birth? 13738 was the big year. A little town called Kawakawa, North Auckland. Oh yes, yeah, Just yeah. in from the Bay of Islands. Great. And um, grew up in Kawakawa? Initially, the first, uh, I think I was about 14 or 15 when we shifted from there, so the first 14 or 15 years there. Did you see much in the way of aviation up there? No. No, my f- neither my mum and dad were interested in aeroplanes. My dad uh, sort of wasn't interested at all. He'd had a ride in the early, early years, I think it might have been late 20s, early 30s, somebody was going around doing joy rides, so he had paid his 10 bob or whatever it was and had a ride and he frightened the hell out of him, so he <laughs> he wasn't interested in aeroplanes at all. Okay. But um, both my mum's brothers were in the Air Force, my two uncles. Yep. <clears throat> And I guess how it kicked off for me was was um, uh, school holidays, Christmas early early January 1945. One of the uncles come back from the Pacific, yep. and um, we were holidaying in Auckland at the time, and he came to see Mum, of course, yep. his sister. And 
I was a little tacker of about six and a half, six and a half going on seven, I suppose, then. Yeah. And uh, he arranged to come and pick me up the next day and take me out to Hobsonville in Fenuapai. Great. Air Force bases. So I really looked forward to that. Uh, and that was a wonderful day. He came and picked me up in the morning in an Air Force Jeep. Yep. And I can remember going through the main gates at Fenuapai, now even. And that was January 1945. And there was a whole lot of activity going on. Um, P-40s, Corsairs, Dakotas, Hudsons, all sorts of neat old aeroplanes now, right. they are to us. They all banging around the circuit or being serviced or whatever. It was a very busy place and then he took me across to Hobsonville and down to the boat ramp, to the launching ramp there, there was Sunderland's parked out, moored out off the ramp. Engineers working on the engines on these things yeah. um, and while we were there a, a walrus, not the mammal type, yeah. the aeroplane type, yeah. landed and came taxiing up the ramp and was hosed down with fresh water, high pressure fresh water hoses by a bunch of guys. And, uh, those visions have stayed with me over the years. Okay. Yeah, and it, um, he really, the old uncle really did a good sell on me. He, um, I was hooked. What was your uncle's name? Ken, Ken Brown. Was he a pilot? No, he wasn't. Um, the other bloke was. Ted, the other, the other brother. Uh, Yep. So, after a wonderful day out there, uh, he took me home and he said he'd come and get me the next day, which he did, and he took me out to a model aeroplane shop at Newmarket, Model Air it was called. Right, right. Old Model Air, uh, Angus MacDonald um, Senior was running it then, um, and I'd never been to a shop like that in my life, of course. Yep. And once again, I was spellbound, and uh, Uncle Ken bought me a little build-up model, rubber-powered thing. Yep. Which I took home and built, and amazingly, it flew. And that kicked me off with an interest in model aeroplanes and also full-size aeroplanes. Right. And of course, during those during those years <coughs> prior to the war finishing. Every now and again, <coughs> Corsairs, P-40s, Ansons, uh, a variety of types would fly over town heading towards Kaikoui or Kirikiri, um, which had been fields that were put in to be used by the military guys. Yep. So I developed the habit of racing outside whenever I heard an aeroplane coming after that and it, um, it followed on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I also have a, have a, have a memory uh, a memory of, and I'm not sure what year it was, but I guess it was after the war, 46 or 47, um, the first Meteor jet aeroplane that we saw in New Zealand right. flew over town. And as a coincidence, the guy that was flying that was a fellow by the name of Mackay, as I, as I recall. That's correct, yep. Um, he demonstrated the 
the media around the countryside at that time. Then as an 18-year-old, I did my CMT training at Hobsonville, and Mackay was the CO of the place. Ah, okay. Yeah, so uh, I had a bit of a yarn about him, uh, about that uh, meteor um, act that he did uh, with him at that time when I was in camp. Right, right. So between the age of 14, when you said you moved away from uh, Kawakawa and 18 CMT, what, where did you go then? Uh, my parents shifted job, job wide, or dad stayed in the same job, but he was transferred to a, to a job in, in Morrinsville in the Waikato, so, oh, yeah. we, so we shifted to Morrinsville. Okay. And then um, my interest in model aeroplanes had continued from, from the earlier years, continued to build them and fly them um, as a teenager in Morrinsville and then um, set my heart on learning to fly, which I, uh, I did in 1956, April 1956 I had my first lesson. Okay. Went solo about three weeks later. And um, that was at Rocker here with the Waikato Aero Club. Oh, right, right. Well, mm. what, what were you flying? Tiger Moth. Tiger Moth, right. Yeah, learned Tigers. And Ken, dear old Ken Fennick was, was the CFI of the place and a wonderful instructor. I had the greatest, developed the greatest uh, respect and admiration for that bloke. He's a very patient fellow and um, a very, very good and firm instructor. Yep. Which, uh, was was wonderful for me. Okay. And then shortly after that, is that when you got your CMT call up? Oh well, yes. The the um, <clears throat> started off with limited funds, of course. Um, spending each week's wages on to buy half an hour's dual instruction. Yep. Uh, I think if I remember rightly, it was five pound an hour dual, so I got a four two pound tens worth each week. Um, There's a lot of money for, in those days. For Thirty wasn't it? minutes. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of money in those days, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, it was. Yeah, it was more than a week's wages for me. The the five pound an hour was yeah. was more than a week's wages. Um, so by the time I paid mum, I think a pound a week board for and to clothe and feed me, uh, two pound ten was left for my flying lessons. Right, right. And dad loaned me the car to drive from Orangeville to over to uh, Rooker here on Saturdays and Sundays. So we've got it going that way. <coughs> okay, okay. And then um, I became involved in the uh, Piaco Gliding Club and I did a little bit of gliding and, and a wee bit of gliding instruction with the, with the club and also did their towing, most of the towing for two or three years, which enabled me to build, build my hours up um, towards a commercial. Was so that, that was, that that was a, sort of through 58, 59, 60 era, yeah. Okay. The gliding club was formed in 57, so I got in, I was involved in the fairly early stages. Is that at uh, Waharoa? At Waharoa, yeah. Okay. So at what point was your compulsory military training? When did that come in? At what, as an 18 year old? Yeah, 18 year olds had the choice of Air Force, Army or Navy. <clears throat> um, you had to set a bit of a pre-entry thing for the Air Force and I think the Navy did as well. And, um, 
so I managed uh, I managed that and it was accepted for the for the um, CMT training at Hobson, mm -hmm. and that was uh, that must have been fifty six. Okay. Yep. Mm. So what uh, what were you doing in the Air Force? Oh, that was well. Uh, the story was in those days whatever you applied for, you didn't get. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, even though I I was I'd started my flying at that stage. That's right. I, I was um, I don't know whether I had my license. My private. I think I did have my private license at that stage. Yes. Um, but I forget what I applied for. Engineering or truck driving or something, and I got um, put in the light anti-aircraft um, era. LAA like light anti-aircraft yeah. so it actually turned out to be about the pick of the trades or if you could call it a trade that were available because we were out uh, on convoys and um, with some live shoots out of the 40mm Bofors guns that we used we had a great time right. it, was a, it was a wonderful four months for me it was some of the the other courses, the cooks and the, and the engineer guys, they spent a lot of time in classrooms and didn't get out so much. But we were out and on the go most of the time, so it was right. uh, it was great. Uh, it was a great deal, really. Was that all done around sort of Auckland area? Yes, it was. Yeah. We used to go out onto the <coughs> tow the guns in convoy. There'd be five or six guns, uh, and we'd tow them out to the Murawite, uh, White uh, comes comes to mind up on top of the cliffs. See, I don't know whose property it was, but they must have had an arrangement with the farmer there. Yep. And we'd line these guns up <coughs> on the top of the cliff, pointing towards Australia, and bang away at all sorts of things. Um, and then they actually um, suggested that they'd, they'd give us a um, some live shoots at a drogue towed behind a, uh, an aircraft. So we looked forward to that. Yeah, we'd been told all about it and how careful we had to be not to shoot the aeroplane down. And so the day came and <coughs> it was a uh, TBF Avenger, Grumman Avenger, came up from a hark here. And, um, at the appropriate time in the morning, we were all lined up on the on the cliff tops there, ready to go. And the Avenger turned up, flying up the coast, <coughs> towing a drogue, which was like a huge windsock, on a long cable, and the drogue was hanging considerably lower than the aeroplane. But I forget the height or how far out, but um, it wasn't very high, or or very far out of the coast either. So in rotation the four or five guns all had a turn at this as he beat up and down the coast. Um, most of us missed it, one or two got some shots through it. We could we could actually um, tell where the shots were going by tracer. We had we every every few shots was it was a tracer so we could follow the tracer. Anyway um, it was getting towards the end of the day, and we'd all had a, all the different crews had had a go at this, and then it was uh, the next gun crew to me, 
<coughs> to the one I was in, it was their turn. And um, the Land Rover with radio commun communication was parked just behind from where I was standing. And then there was, a, there was one of the guys, a flight sergeant, he was sort of trying to control us all. Uh, anyway, it was the guys next door to me that, that that was their turn to have a go at the drogue, and sure enough, we we followed their tracer, and they they latched right onto the onto the drogue, and they became sort of mesmerised somehow, and they kept firing, and kept cranking the gun horizontally, and we we, we watched the tracers go up the up the tow rope and into the aeroplane. Oh. Um, these were the point fives, not the, not the uh, 40 mil. Um, we, had, we had Brownings attached to the, to the um, Bovis gun as well, so we could fire point fives on them. Yeah. Anyway, there's a yell on the radio from the pilot of the, of the tow aircraft, stop firing, we've been hit. So the flight charge and yelled to the crew to stop firing, but as I said, the guys were sort of mesmerised, and it, it took them a second or two to realise what they'd done. In the meantime, the pilot had jettisoned Drogue, and he had pulled up into a steep climbing turn away from the coast, away from us, and um, continued back to Ahakia, having declared an emergency. I think he did. It, He'd actually been shot at. Yep. Uh, the drogue fluttered down towards the uh, rocks at the bottom of the cliff. It was pretty much shredded. It was little bits of fabric everywhere. Wow. So a mate and I climbed down the down the cliffs and picked up some of these bits of drogue and and um, then had to climb back up again. Uh, and we all signed the thing and. Um, but I kept that for a number of years, my little piece for a number of years, but I don't know where it is now. Right. But as, as a, as a follow-on to that, years later, <coughs> I had to shift the Rotorua, and um, the day we shifted there, we had um, the furniture truck had, had gone and left all the boxes and everything, of course, in the, in the lounge, and we just, the wife and I were just sorting ourselves out, and there was a knock on the door, and there's a guy standing there with a bottle of beer, and he introduced himself and he said, I'm your neighbour, I just thought I'd, I'd come and say good day." So I welcomed him in and we sat down amongst all the cardboard boxes in the lounge and, and uh, started to get to know each other. And he asked me what I, was, I did for a job and I said, well, uh, the DC-3 that's out on the aerodrome, that's, that's the one I'm using at the moment. Oh. He said, did you uh, spend some time in the Air Force? I said, no, only only, um, only my four months CMT training. Yep. Oh, he said, don't talk to me about CMTs. <laughs> Why is that? He said, oh, he said, I was, a, uh, I was operating a, a drogue in the back of an Avenger years ago, and we had to come up from Ahakia for a, a live shoot for a bunch of CMT idiots and... Uh, on the Mira White Cliffs. I said, oh, yeah. And he said, we, um, we'd we done several runs up and down, nobody hit the drogue. And then on this particular run, he said, the, the particular crew latched onto the drogue and continued firing until the 
the shots that were rounds went through the aeroplane. And as a coincidence, he said the um, he was sitting in the belly of the aeroplane, apparently facing aft, operating the winch. And the story that he told me was that the, um, a couple of these rounds went through the fuselage rear of him, and then also in front of him. So he was just in that gap wow. between them. Um, that was his tale anyway. So uh, <laughs> that was a bit of a coincidence as well. So then I had to had to let him know that I was one of the lads on the on the cliff top that day, but <laughs> not one of the crew of that particular effort, no. Wow. It's amazing that all those so, years so later... So it was a bit of a coincidence, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So how did you go from... You, you said you were at the uh, Wakaroa Gliding Club, Piaka Gliding Club, Gliding Club, and how did you get into the commercial side of flying from there? Uh, well, no, the gliding... The gliding thing didn't didn't help in any. Well, it did help. It, uh, the glider towing helped immensely to, to um, I'm sure, it would save my bacon many many times once I got going in the aerial top racing business. But no, I did my I did my commercial. Uh, I fooled around a little bit for two or three years instead of getting stuck into the into the SWAT. So that um, I was about 22 when I got my commercial. I think so. You can get a commercial at 19. That's the minimum age. So yep. that time I was having a lot of fun with my glider towing and and other things. Um, and I didn't sort of settle down and swat as I should have done. But then I did uh, got my act together and got my commercial and um, I wanted wanted to give the aerial top racing caper a, a go. So. Uh, I managed to get a job with Wanganui Aerowork at Wanganui. Oh, right, okay. And I started off with them. Dear old Wally Harding was uh, was the founder of the company and the father of all the Harding boys. Um, Wally was still very much involved with the company in those days, running it on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, uh, I owe Wally the the, um, the thanks for, for giving me an opportunity at get started. Yeah. As a total greenhorn in the business, didn't know didn't know anything about the job at all. But uh, you had to learn quickly in those days. Yeah. Did you learn on the job or did you go to a top dressing school? No, you learnt learnt the, the even <coughs> there really wasn't any any training as such either. Not at all. You were expected to be able to fly an aeroplane properly. When she had a commercial license, yep. um, and I'd done most of my flying had been done at Tiger Moths, which and my glider towing helped towing, towing gliders out of paddocks and all that sort of thing. Um, and I was keen on aerobatics, so I guess other blokes like myself that that um, followed that line came fairly fairly competent in the aeroplane, really. And that's what they—that's what the companies expected. You had a commercial license, so you should be able to fly an aeroplane. Yeah. You just had to adapt that to the job at hand, and um, so they gave you an aeroplane, and off you went to work okay. with a with a more experienced bloke to keep an eye on you for a day or two. Uh, in, a, in a separate plane with you, or mm -hmm. was he in a separate aircraft? Ah, oh, separate aeroplane. Yep, yep. There wasn't any dual dual aeroplanes other than a Beaver. Um, 
everything was was pretty much single seat. The Fletchers are all single-seat aircraft. Um, so so yes, it was a matter of, of learning quickly or you became a statistic. Yeah. So you started straight into the Fletchers and you didn't have no. the time off? Or? No. The, uh, <coughs> once Wally gave me the job, I went down to start with him. They, they, um, well, when I went down for the interview and they, Wally agreed to... Um, take me on, he pointed out the window and he said that aeroplane over there will be yours um, and I was to start in a week's time or fortnight's time or something but however in the intervening time by the time I got down there to, to start that aeroplane had been wrecked okay. <laughs> which wasn't unusual um, the guy that had been flying it had run out of gas in it while he was working up in the National Park area and he had a forced landing, of course, into a, a most inhospitable paddock and um, damaged the aeroplane severely. So there wasn't an aeroplane for me there to start on, as as the both Wally had hoped and, of course, I had hoped. Yes. Yeah. So um, they kept me going by <coughs> uh, giving me a few tasks to do in the hangar. Helping the helping the engineers on the servicing of the airplanes, changing, changing spark plugs and oil and oil filters and things like that, which which was good for a while and I enjoyed that. But that's what I hadn't gone down there to do, so I became quite impatient. Yes. And um, Wally, being being the wise old gent, could see this young young fella getting pretty impatient and a bit toey, I suppose. Yeah. So they. They, as an interim, until a Fletch was available, they um, hired an aircraft off Airwork in Christchurch, which was a PA-18A, a Piper Cup. Oh, right. Which a lot of them were being used, that's a 150 horsepower cup, a lot of them were being used in the industry at that time. Um, so they shot me down to Christchurch, I'd never flown one of these things before, so they, I went down to Christchurch. Uh, to pick it up and flew it back to Wanganui and, and went to work in it the next day right. alongside one of the senior guys in the area. And that's where it all started. So do you remember that first uh, actual flight when you first dropped in Furt? Was, was it a bit nerve-wracking? Oh, I don't know whether I do remember that. I, think, I suppose I do. Um, I can remember that morning, you know, I, I can remember the morning went out, I remember the flight back from Christchurch, got back late uh, late in the evening and um, one of the Harding boys told me that they'd arranged for me to go out the next morning with with an opposition company pilot, Buzz Spillman, who was, um, he was a Piper Cub man on the Wanganui Aerodrome at that time. Yep. He flew for aerial farming, who were based in Palmerston North and they had a lot of a lot of cubs scattered around the countryside. So I'd out with Buzz the next morning and worked alongside him. He gave me a bit of a brief briefing, <laughs> I suppose you'd say. Uh, I followed him around and um, I suppose, what did we do, a couple of refuel times, I, I think it was, and then he told me to go and find, find uh, ditch Harding, Ditch was working up the National Park area somewhere and uh, 
of why I went and carried on for me. Okay. Yeah. So it was pretty much dropping into the deep end. Um, but we coped. Yep. Yeah, loved every minute of it. But how, how long did you work for Wanganui Aeroworks then? Not all that long, about six months, really. <coughs> um, the, that was 1960, I think, 60, or 61, 1961 that was. Um, and I'd heard, uh, I, I, I couldn't see the way things were, were working with aero work at that particular time. I couldn't see a Fletcher becoming available for me for some time, um, and I'd sort of cut my teeth on the on the cub, I guess. But then I got a, I got, um, well, I was made aware of a job vacancy in in fielding, being based in fielding with rural aviation who were operating Cessna 180s, and I. I knew one or two of the guys flying for them, and I thought, well, gee whiz, that's a, that'll be a bit of a change. So I applied for that job, and it was accepted. So I left left Hardings and um, started with Rural, right. I think, in June of that year. Okay, yep. And then was based in Fielding in a matter of two. And um, that was that was a um, that was a good move, and um, I found them all. Rural aviation, as it was in those days, was a was a wonderful company to work for. Very good for the young the young tearaway pilots at the time, I suppose. The uh, the boss of the company, the founder, Miles King, was an ex ex Corsair man from the war, and um, he's two IC Phil Lightband, wonderful guy. Phil still still going. He lives lives up north. Great he's guy. He's down Wanganui now. He's moved to Wanganui now. Has he now? Yes, yeah. Ah, yeah. wonderful guy. Uh, and they, uh, between Phil and Miles, they were they were great leaders of the team, and um, they were very, very good to us young blokes in the firm. So long as we played ball and did the work, if the work was there, if you worked hard, um, they looked after you very, very well. So I really enjoyed those years with. With rural aviation. So, how long were you with them for? Um, must have been about four years, I guess. Oh yeah. Operated all out all over the countryside, South Island, North Island, wherever the work was. I went, and um, yeah, I guess learned a lot, <coughs> um, and then moved back up into the Waikato up to. To Guy Robertson's company, Robertson Air Service, back to Rooker Hill where I'd started off. Right. Um, I was sort of keen to get back to the Waikato, and uh, <coughs> uh, so I did that. Shifted to them late '64, yep. about September, October '64, I think. Yeah. And they were operating Fletchers there too. Yep. They were uh, Robbie's was a he was a Fletcher man. He and Ozzy James, they were two buddies, ex wartime buddies, and they both started business fairly early on. Ozzy was a little bit before Guy, I think, <coughs> and then they'd um, 
uh, between the pair of them and also with Fred Sawyer, who was Team Serial Top Racing Company, um, they got uh, got the Fletcher aircraft going with um, Wenzel Fletcher, who designed the thing in America, and um, he paid them a visit and saw what they were doing with the Tiger Moths in the early days, and he figured that he had an aeroplane that would be able to do the job better than them. And the Tigers, so Ozzy and um, Guy Robertson were the two ringleaders in getting the Fletcher thing going in New Zealand. Yeah. So, but the whole production of them and everything. Yeah, Ozzy took the production side on, <coughs> and Guy just bought them from from the assembly uh, system that James Aviation were doing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was a was a total Fletcher fleet. And of course Guy was another ex-Corsair man as well. So. He was, yeah. and he's only just recently died. I went yeah. to his funeral a couple of months ago. Yeah. Um, had a ribald 94, so he, he had a good innings. Yeah. And his was, uh, he was, his was a good company to operate for as, as well. He was very good to us, to the younger pilots. Um, He knew all the shortcuts himself, and um, he'd been there and done that, so we couldn't we couldn't fool him in any way. Yep. And he had a good two eyes, uh, two IC, Jim O'Donnell. He was he was very very good guy to get along with, nice guy. Jack Ward, the engineering manager, tried to uh, keep things in order in the hangar. And yeah, it was a good, very tight tightly run little ship. Yeah, it was a good company to work for. On these companies, um, would you be assigned a specific aircraft that's your aircraft, and you had to look after it? Or some some companies did, in my experience anyway. Some companies did, and some some didn't. Uh, when I kicked off with Hardings, each each pilot in the company had had their aeroplane. Some of them had their names painted on them, and that was their aeroplane for as long as they were there. Rural aviation worked a slightly different system. <coughs> They had, um, I think at one stage they had 18 or 19 aeroplanes operating, really throughout the country. So you'd, you'd do 100 hours or 50 hours, they're on 50 hour inspections then I think. So you do your 50 hours and come into uh, New Plymouth, the main base for maintenance, and they would have a serviceable one available for you to, to, to take away. So. <clears throat> they worked that system for a while, so nobody really had their own aeroplane. You would just pick up a serviceable one and drop, well, you drop your unserviceable one off, go away again in a, in a serviceable one. But I think um, it didn't work too well in practice. It might sound fine in theory from a maintenance point of view, but it didn't work very well in practice because guys weren't taking an interest in the aeroplanes. They were just, somebody else could have, you know, uh, given it a hard time. You didn't know what you were getting. Sure, it was serviceable, but. Yeah. Yeah. So they found that there was a fairly general deterioration in the condition of the aeroplanes in the fleet. Okay. Not from a maintenance point of view, just from a TLC point of view. Yeah. So they went back to uh, allocating an aeroplane for each pilot and then right. 
you looked upon that as your own aeroplane, and and the fleet looked a lot better. Right, right. Yeah, it showed up. Okay, that's guys, very interesting. Guys were taking interest in their machines, and um, yeah, and you get to know your your own machine as well. You know, the um, in that industry, you're, you're operating pretty close to the limits at times, and you get to know all the clanks, bangs, and little little noises that each aeroplane makes and um, yeah it's a better feeling if you know your machine better because yeah. I, I guess that 50 hour service that would come up fairly quickly when you're doing top dressing I, I don't know whether I'm right I think I'm I'm right in saying it 50 maybe and then maybe it was extended to 100 but yes yeah those uh, in a busy season those hours came round quickly yeah, yeah. so it was Quite a big rotation of machinery through the through the hangar with a yeah. company with a large fleet. And uh, so, how long were you with uh, Robertson's then? Uh, well, <clears throat> let me think now. For must have been about five years. Yep, five years, Robbie. I guess 64 up till 69, yeah, about five years. Okay. And then um, work, it was one of the the old um, aerial top racing business over the years has, has, its, has had its highs and lows over the years and um, in tune with the farming, farming community, um, you know, they, they've gone through some slow years as well as some good years well the, the top racing trade sort of followed the highs and lows right anyway work dropped off it <coughs> was one of the one of the low points i guess um work dropped off and robbie had quite a big fleet operating so I'd, and i was i was a pretty keen young fella and um, was after the hours i had a young family and a mortgage and all those, all those sort of things, yeah. and plus, keen to go. So work was dropping off, and we we're having to to um, share it around a little bit with the guys, keep everybody around about the same yeah. level hour-wise. And um, an opposition company who had a had a unit based on Hamilton. Um, Gary Tolson was the uh, operator at Astra Aviation, he called his company. He had a unit in Hamilton. And they knew I was getting a little bit unsettled with Robbie, so they made an approach to me and uh, I finished up changing horses and uh, stayed at Hamilton and uh, flew a different coloured aeroplane. Right. right. Worked for Gary. Okay. And that worked very well. Um, and then he, in turn, got bought out by James Aviation. Ah, right. Aussie James bought out and made an offer to Gary a year or two later and um, so I finished up <coughs> still at Hamilton, uh, still flying my old Adastra aeroplane but working for James Aviation. Right. So okay. that's how that came to be. With the top dressing companies, I know that most of the, the owners were friends and there wasn't really that competition that you would normally expect, was there? Um, yeah, I guess they were uh, buddies in lots of ways. 
they uh, well the industry started ma mainly mainly by by ex World War Two flying personnel. Other than the odd exception, there was one or two businessmen who had a go. Lawson Field was one. Um, yeah. Colin James was another, and, and one or two others, I guess. But but mainly they. Um, it was an opportunity for these guys that come, you know, the war had finished 45, 46. Um, they were out of a job, that they, they were flying fellows, you know, that that um, got used to that sort of environment. A lot of them, and my uncle included, um, couldn't settle back into the jobs that they were doing before they'd gone away, yeah. gone overseas. So life wasn't very... Uh, I suppose you'd say exciting for them after that. It must have been a big, a big um, change to come back from what they'd been doing. And then when this aerial top dressing idea started to get bandied around, and Aussie James got going, and one or two others got going, a lot of these guys thought here's an opportunity to get back into an aeroplane again. Yeah, yeah. And that, a lot of the early early guys were returned servicemen. Um, hadn't been able to settle at their trades, so a lot of them were friends. Yeah, yeah. Had been friends in the service or, or whatever, and then <coughs> all doing a similar sort of a job. They, you know, it's a very it's a very competitive job, um, and they were all out to try and make a living in this in this new industry. But yeah, most of them, most of them were, were friends of at, at some level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. They so might, you know, all enjoy a beer or, or or whatever together, and then go out and try and flog a job off uh, off their mate. You know. Yeah. So if someone like you switched from one company to another, did the bosses get annoyed with that, or was it just something that happened? From you know switching companies. Uh, uh, how do you mean, Dave? Well, when you went from. Robinson, Robertson. Oh, changed to, companies. Yeah, changed, changed to Tosses. Oh, yeah. There was, um, yeah, I, yeah. A couple of the changes I had it pointed out to me that um, I wasn't wasn't flavour of the month yeah. by by changing horses, but they each one accepted that yeah, you, you know, that's what I wanted to do or anybody wanted to do, so yeah. they could go and do it, but. I think they felt a little bit insulted, perhaps, that uh, I'd chosen, or anybody else that was changing camps were choosing somebody else instead of themselves. So, yeah, you know, it became quite a personal relationship um, in a lot of cases. Yeah, but uh, that was the way it was. Yeah, nobody stopped just shifting, but. Um, Could have been a bit of a feeling like that, I think, at, at times. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so now you're working with Aussie James and, and James Aviation. That uh, that was quite a big company, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, Aussie had he had set his sights on becoming the biggest in New Zealand, and he was. Um, he had a lot of gear <coughs> at the time. The time that he bought at Astro Aviation was around. Um, Oh, crikey, going, going from memory around 71, I think, 71 or 72, something like that. Yep. 
pretty big operator. He had a big, big fleet of helicopters, um, large fleet of Fletcher aircraft, a couple of DC-3s. So, um, Plus the manufacturing side as well, wasn't it? Mm. He was involved in the manufacturing side as well, wasn't he? Yeah, had been, of course. Yep. Um, yeah, the big, big service, um, servicing set up there, you know, to, to operate a, a fleet that size. Um, once again, just going from memory, I think there might have been something like 40 aeroplanes, 40 fleets, something like that, right. uh, scattered all around. They all had to be rotated through from a maintenance point of view, and uh, there was a continuous overhaul system going then. Um, so, yeah, it was a big operation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I grew up in Cambridge, I'm from Cambridge, and as a kid in the 70s, I remember Fletcher's going over all the time. Yeah, That's right. It was real busy with them. It was, yeah. it was. Uh, through the 70s, a lot of activity. Yeah, it really was. So, uh, played a big part in the, in the farming, um, farming system of New Zealand, I'm sure, over the years. Exactly, know. yeah. Yeah, what we've got today is really down to that, isn't well, it? Well, yeah, that's what the experts say. They, um, apparently, New Zealand was the New Zealand soils were very deficient, a lot of trace elements, and and needed large large quantities of phosphate. Yep. And at the end of the war, when the, all the uh, return service guys were coming back, and um, they were trying to. Um, get New Zealand farming cranked up again, you know, they, they, the experts were trying to find ways of making the grass grow quicker than the rabbits could eat it. Yep. Um, there was a big infestation of rabbits in the central North Island area and in the South Island, and it still is in the South Island yep. parts. So <coughs> the, the means of getting phosphate onto the, um, onto the hillier country in New Zealand um, was was pretty important and pretty crucial to the to the development of the farming industry in New Zealand yep. at the time. Definitely, yeah. So this industry yeah, was able to do that, and as a consequence, you know, sheep numbers went through the roof. And um, yeah, what did they used to say? Something like seventy million sheep in New Zealand. Now I think there's about half that number, yeah. but. Um, there was a big, big boost in production, farming production in the in the late fifties, sixties, seventies, up through that era. Yeah. yeah. So they were the they were the heady years in the in the trade, really. Yeah. Must have been quite exciting to be part of uh, something like that, I suppose. Well, it, I guess. Uh, yeah. The. the um, I wasn't off a farm or anything like that. I, I had no interest in in farming, but I certainly was interested in aeroplanes. And and I guess you know the 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 industry was started by the likes of Ozzy James, Guy Robertson, Fred Sawyer, and a whole bunch of others. Johnny Barr. All of them returned men. <coughs> and then for us young young lads, young tearaways at the time, I suppose with a with a brand new commercial license. Um. Here is a way of, of you know, that that developed or were developing this this system that had the approval of civil aviation 
and um, the country generally, and, and here was an opportunity for people to beat the hell out of the New Zealand countryside, low level, yeah. which which was pretty appealing <laughs> to, to youngsters like myself. And so, you know, the airline thing, in my case anyway, the airline thing didn't appeal to me one little bit, but Hells Bells, this aerial top dressing act, seemed pretty, pretty good to have a go at, and I thought, well, I'll do that for two or three years and get out of my system, then I'll go the airline way. Yep. But of course, of course, time rolls on and you don't make the change, and there we stayed. So it, it was a wonderful, wonderfully buoyant period, I think, pretty much right across the board in New Zealand at that time, you know. It was um, the 60s, 70s, unemployment was unheard of. Um, yeah, it was just, you just got on and did, did it, made it, make it all happen. Yep. Yep. And that, that's how the industry kicked off. We'll pick up this story in the next episode, where Les is just getting on to find the Douglas Dakota as a top dressing aircraft with James Aviation. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show.